HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a better egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st slash hrn. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from whenever to whenever. I'm on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We got uh, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez up uh, in uh, Connecticut on the Long Island Sound. How you doing, Stas? Good. Good. We got Matt in the Rhode Island booth. Matt, how you doing? Doing great. Doing great. We got uh, John, who's in uh, East. You're in. You're in Lyme right now, right? You're in Lyme, Correct. Connecticut. Correct. So we're a, we're a, we're a New England heavy uh, uh, show today, but I'm going to bring it back. To New York because we have everybody's favorite cooking issues guest, Peter Kim. <laughs> How you doing, it's a Peter? Punching bag. Everyone's favorite. Well, yeah. he's not a punching What's bag anymore. a punching bag? Anymore. Always a punching bag. No, here's the thing. So, Peter Kim, you're you're, uh, you're in Brooklyn right now, right? Yep. And since we haven't had you on since the pandemic, so when the pandemic started, the last time uh, we had Peter on the show, there was not a pandemic yet, and we were furiously at the Museum of Food and Drink trying to uh, open African slash American, which is our, our exhibition uh, at the museum on um, kind of the, the, the contributions, both known and unknown, of, uh, of, of black folk to American foodways. And, uh, and yeah, and then the whole world fell apart. Peter had, Peter had, what Peter's plan, right, Peter right or wrong, was to, you were gonna open this, you were gonna open the, the exhibition and then you're moving away from uh, the museum to go become the head of um, the head of the food program there at, at Pinterest. But you had like timed it so that like you could, like I've worked for years. I'm gonna get this exhibition open. We're gonna do yeah. it. And then the whole bottom kind of fell out of the world, right? Yeah. So instead, Jean and I were like duct taping up like boxes in front of the quilt to keep the sunlight from making it fade and like we were yeah. like turbo trying to like basically we were like we don't know when somebody's going to be able to come back in this room again and so we're going to basically do whatever we can to like preserve this thing as far as i know i mean it's more or less like we left it isn't it john mm. i think no. more stuff has been stacked in there because 
Oh, yeah. yeah, I forget Center needed some of the other space. And the well, seven oh, yeah. pallets of shoebox lunches came, or, you know, lunch boxes came. Oh, my God. What? Yeah. That was yeah. such a crazy time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. crazy uh, is another word for bad, right? When's it yeah. opening? <laughs> like, when's it actually going to open? Oh, geez, Stas. Jeez, Louise. Oh, we, we really, you don't know? Well, look, a lot of things, a lot of things have to happen for it to open and you know i'm only one person so it's you know n- oh no not- i'm just saying like ballpark oh next year 2022 yeah that's uh-huh. what that that's the year that comes after 2021 hey jesus yeah because the like the problem is is that <laughs> like everything has to work for everybody for all the all the stakeholders and the way that the space so we're really in the weeds on stuff that half the people listening probably have no idea what we're talking about the museum of food and drink like like uh it, peter started peter was the founding whatever he he started the museum's actual programming like i had this idea many years ago i tried to start it i failed nastasia and i did a fundraiser where we met peter Peter quit. This is the the short story. Peter quit his job as a white shoe. But white shoe? Who the hell wears white shoes at a white shoe law firm? What is that? What is Nobody. white shoe? What no, the hell is it? Yeah. What, why is it called Miss that? Misnomer. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It's crazy, right? I mean, like if yeah, you wore a white shoe to work, people would be like, the hell, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so he's at this white shoe law firm. Uh, and we'll get into this. We'll get into this uh, later because it's well, well known that like being a lawyer was kind of like... You didn't really want to be a lawyer, right? That was to please your parents. Uh, I know. I, I was interested in studying the law and being a lawyer, maybe just not working at a firm like that. But, you know, it was good to it's good to cut your teeth at a corporate firm like that to kind of understand that world, too. Yeah. And so he's like, I'm going to quit my job and, uh, you know, I'm going to actually make this museum happen, which is what he did. Uh, and we, Nastasia and I both told him not to do it because, you know, we were like, we don't know, is it going to work? Boop, beep, boop, boop. And, you know, also, you weren't so happy on the home front uh, back in Illinois with your parents, uh, where I guess they weren't in Illinois at that time. But you know what I mean? Like, uh, it was yeah. it was a source of problems, let's say. Yes, my dad and I were not in, on good terms for a few years there. Yeah. Anyway. But that's another story. So anyway, so like he does this, uh, he, he basically he makes it happen, the museum. And then uh, we, we do the African-American exhibit where it was like, it was supposed to be, it's going to be, you know, great. But anyway, so he negotiated with this place called the Africa Center, which is where the exhibit's going to be. And, you know, we could have, actually, Peter, we should have you back on sometime just to talk about now that, you know, you, you've kind of like put a, a cap on that portion of your of your career of what it's like to start something like that you know what i mean yeah, yeah. like because it's just a nutty and it's just a nut it's just a nutty thing that you you you, you know had to do like from passing out on a on a on a you know a cherry picker at three in the morning <laughs> trying to like hang lights to you know negotiating yes. negotiating with people because everyone everyone who tries to and and, and wow wow Whoa. John's dog doesn't like doesn't like putting things up at two a.m. Anyway, um, so yeah, no, I mean, look, well, first of all, I would be remiss to not say there were a, a lot of other people who worked on this uh, along, you know, with me. Um, but yes, I yeah, would but I'm say not talking that, to them yeah, right now. Yes, I, and I would say, uh, 
yes, it's a lot of self-flagellation to get something like this off the ground. Uh, starting up anything, anybody who started a business knows it's hard. I'd say starting a nonprofit is another level of interestingness. And then starting a nonprofit museum that requires like a brick-and-mortar presence is another level of, of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think it's like also like, you know, it, it's a brick and mortar thing, but it's also a creative endeavor. And I think, right. you know, the, the corners that you have to cut and the decisions that you have to make on the fly and then people hold you to later are just crazy. This is why like this is why like criticism in general, I find so kind of upsetting um, because it's kind of like, I mean, uh, look, a consumer of a museum event, a consumer of a drink or a, or a dish or of a podcast, they shouldn't have to care. In fact, specifically, you know, I tell myself this all the time, nobody cares like what your problems are. That's not what's important. Like you're right. asking their time or their money. And so you owe everything to them and they owe nothing to you. It's kind of like being a parent. Like you mm-hmm. owe everything to your kids and they don't really owe anything to you. And that's why uh, you just take all the problems and you just push them down. Deep inside, just keep pushing. Yeah. That's my advice. Let the hate flow. <laughs> yeah, but it does, like, but when critics, you know, don't kind of give any credit at all for the how hard it is to make anything happen, it kind of ticks me a little bit. But anyway, so that said, uh, to back to Nastasia, uh, we can't, the, the, the fact that we're in a space at the Africa Center means that we cannot uh, open unless we're at full capacity. We can't guarantee full capacity until 2022 because and it takes X number of months to open something to decide you're going to open it. So the CDC only yesterday came out and said that we might be back to normal by the end of the year. And it's just not enough time to flip all of the switches. So there you have it. Um, and that's how uh, stuff works when you're a scrappy uh, startup. Anyway, so Peter went on to do uh, Pinterest. But the reason we're having him on the show now is he is the host of his own uh, hit podcast, Counter Jam. You want to talk to us about it? Yeah, I mean, essentially... Yeah, podcast uh, on Counter Food Fifty Two Network. By the way, yep, it's on the Food Fifty Two Podcast Network, and it's a show that looks at culture through food and music. And so, uh, the basic gist of it is every episode takes on one cultural identity uh, that could be a you know something like Korean American cultural identity, or it might even be a place so like New York City. Um, and then I think of it as sort of presenting various data points. So you're just showing the perspectives of two or three people from that community, and then also playing music uh, that has been created by a couple artists from that community as well. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun to put together. And I, you know, I think I realized at a certain point there weren't a lot of food and music podcasts out there, or actually really any music podcast that actually play music. And I know why. It's because legally it is a pain in the butt to play music on a podcast. And uh, then I did what, of course... Uh, what I do, and I just t- took the, on the sort of masochistic task of going through, like getting licensing for all the music and uh, negotiating each individual song. <laughs> oh, so you don't have like a blanket BMI ASCAP license? You have to go and like individually do each song? Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing about podcasting. It doesn't work with those like BMI ASCAP licenses because the shows are downloaded. And so they haven't um, figured this out yet? No. And so it's a known thing in the podcasting world. So when you hear music on a podcast, either A, they're doing it uh, just hoping that they won't get busted or that they can do a fair use uh, defense, or they're doing what I do, which is tracking down the licensing. And it's not even just one license. Usually every song is owned by at least two entities and sometimes three or four. And so um, 
Yeah, because the, pub- on, the publishing know. gets doled out to like a billion different people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it is. it has been uh, somewhat masochistic. The way I've kind of gotten around it is I focus on independent artists or I wor- I'll get music from guests. And they're more willing to help me jump through the hoops uh, because they're on the show. So most recent episode has Femi Kuti and Made Kuti. And so they basically connected me with all the people I need to talk to to get all the different licenses. Yeah. All right. Wow. So I didn't realize. So it's amazing that, you know, even in your second time around, which I appreciate that Peter self-flagellates at all points in his life. He never <laughs> learns. So in this way, like we're all on this podcast that same way. Do you think that's yeah. a good, you think it's a good way to be? Absolutely. You know what? I, you know what I say? And this is what I sometimes said at MoFed uh, was, you know, if this were easy, everybody else would have done this. Right. And so you have to kind of. I mean, there's a reason why there weren't a ton of food museums out there. And so I think there is something to looking for hard paths because that inherently means that probably nobody else is doing it. And so you just have to be <laughs> willing enough or crazy enough to do that. Yeah. And also, it's not the show. So the show, the Counter Jam, right? It's not like a. So you'll have. Well, you have like three guests, let's mm-hmm. say, but it's not like a string of interviews. You kind of cut them back into each other. So you'll go back and forth between the different sets of interviews, kind of tracing a, a through line of questioning on, on your part. Uh, and like, you know, for instance, you'll, maybe you'll have some people who are in New York, some people who are in Nigeria, some people who are in LA, I mean, not in the same show, but then, you know, you're, you're cutting back and forth and then like punctuating it with music. Is that pretty much the, the, the shtickety shtick? Yeah. All, yeah. So that's also masochistic. Essentially, I just like get, get the interviews and then listen to everything and then try to pull out themes. And I think about like mapping out the episode after that. So, um, yeah, it's it takes time, but it's fun. Yeah. So the very first one, of course, you decide to stay kind of close to home. You had your mom's on, which I thought was kind of kind of cool. And, and you yeah. did Korean as your first as your first as your first thing. And by the way, this show, like the format of this show kind of if you need to know what Peter is like actually kind of like, like it's perfect. It's perfect, Peter. Right. Because it combines a like the the things that he likes, but also what he's been working on for years, which is kind of using food as a touchstone to talk about culture in general and kind of how people grew up. And that's really what the museum is about. And I think that's why Peter, you know, was kind of interested in, in, in that project anyways, food as a way to food as a way to discuss us as people us as you know as parts of our own culture and how to explore other cultures you say that's fair absolutely yeah so his first one was of course his own and he had um roy Choi from from la and he had uh he had his mom and and he had uh margaret cho on so it was, it was pretty funny and what i learned most was that i didn't know peter you're part of this customization you're part of this like I'm going to just use what like regular like you know white white bread Americans call call them all ramen but ramen customization right so you want to first go into the difference between ramen and ramen and, and like describe describe a, I didn't realize you were part of this fad I feel like this is a huge not a oh fad but it's it's a huge thing outside of the community now you know what I'm saying Yeah No I mean instant ramen is it's I mean I probably I've eaten many times my body weight over the course of my lifetime I actually remember the very first time I had instant ramen. It was Sapporo Ichiban beef flavor. Um, I freaking love this stuff. John can attest to the fact that I ate this like maybe 50% of the time for like lunch um, at work. Uh, <laughs> um, 
But yeah, and then I mean, I think for me, like it's one of the ways I kind of learned to cook was by starting with instant ramen. And of course, instant ramen is the Korean version of instant ramen,、uh, which you know,、uh, Nissin being the most well-known brand in, in the Japanese、um, market. But Koreans have instant ramen, and I would say the main thing that distinguishes instant ramen from Japanese instant ramen is the spiciness of the of the broth. And then I would say. Typically, you have a larger gauge noodle on the the Korean instant ramen than on the Japanese instant ramen. You're a larger gauge and, noodle. That's right. That's my that's my nickname.、Um, and so then, yeah, I mean, then like the the great thing is that you can kind of like hack it in lots of different ways, and、um, and you can do it super quickly. So I can make what I love is that I can think about instant ramen, and then I could have the bowl ready to eat within five minutes,、um, which is pretty great. And so, yeah, I mean, I have a whole like flow chart in my head of like. Do I do a dry noodle or a wet noodle? And if it's wet, like, do I want a cream, like a fatty broth or a non-fatty broth? That's like, my nickname, dry, wet noodle. You know, wet noodle is my nickname. <laughs>、um, But t- tell us, then, you,、yeah. you have this, you have this like kind of like、uh, fusion nightmare that's your favorite, this kind of carbonara one that you were talking to Roy Choi about. And you said he was, he said he was going to go out and try it. I wonder whether he did. Why don't you describe your favorite? He actually sent me, he sent me the picture right after the show. He made it and he loved it. All right,、um, so give me the, give it to me. So here's the deal. Like basically, you get the water boiling in your water kettle. Take the bowl, in the bowl, crack an egg into the bowl. Drop、uh, two slices of American cheese into the bowl. Take your powder packet of the, the soup packet. Put about two thirds in there. You don't need as much because you're not using any water.、Um, and then、uh, reserve the little noodle bits and reserve the dried vegetable. And then get your noodles boiling. And then it's going to take about two and a half minutes to, or to three minutes to get to your like perfect al dente texture. And then take the noodles out, drop them into the bowl in which you've put all this stuff, and then just mix that around.、Oh, pardon me, I know that this is a family, family show. show. Mix that stuff around. Peter's show then... is not a family show, by the way. There are more f drums being bom-、uh, dropped in Peter's show than <laughs> you know. Yeah, and so then the you know, the egg, you beat the egg, and it, and then the the American cheese melts, and then there's like the noodle water that's clinging to the noodles, and it all comes together,、um, and turns into a, a sort of sauce. And then,、uh, and then I top it. And this is what I say is the pièce de résistance.、Uh, top it with the dried noodle bits, and you, t- you and you top it also with the dried vegetables, just to add some texture. And voila, you've got basically kind of like I put in very heavy quotes、uh, carbonara、um, using、uh, instant ramen. Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the Peter Kim. So when you make that at home, just know that you're making the Peter Kim. That's all I'm saying. And Nastasia,、yeah. I don't know. And you can eat it in like three slurps. I don't know if you realize this, Nastasia. Tell me if you did. But did you know that we not only have Peter Kim on the show, we have DJ Omega Sixty. I I know. I remember. <laughs> I remember. DJ DJ Omega Sixty contacted us to work for the museum before it was a museum. That email. What? That email address、yeah. was Omega Sixty. Then how is he not in your phone? Peter Kim. Peter's still is- Peter Lawyer. Peter Lawyer, but why wasn't it Peter Omega Sixty? I didn't take that seriously. Wow. <laughs> well, I don't think、wow. I ever explained to you what Omega Sixty. You did,、meant. you did I mean, eventually,、no. but yeah. Oh yeah. Still didn't take、yeah. it seriously. Yeah. So Peter, on his very first podcast, Peter ended it. I'm sure because you know. Also, you could get the rights for it. Now, now I know that also you're building your life around what you can get the rights for. Played. Like some of his、uh, just coming back from the state,、uh, coming back from Cameroon to the states,、uh, his、uh, his DJ song Alphaville, right? Yep. 
Yeah, we don't have rights for it, so we can't play it. But if you want to hear, (laughs) for all of you who have for years enjoyed Peter coming on the show, you should listen at the very least to uh, that first episode so you can hear Peter's mom talking to him and also uh, listen to uh, Peter Peter as as Omega 60. Yeah, but... um, and there's a whole story behind the name, which I won't go into now. It's on the episode, but I, I remember, you know, it's so funny. Like, I remember at one point, like, and I've never really talked to people much. I don't talk to people much about my music, but there was one time in Philly when I finally was, like, ready to tell somebody about Omega 60, and their reaction was, oh, you mean, like, the fatty acid? And that's when I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I shrank back into my shell, and I was like, I'm never telling anybody again. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so while we're still talking about the show, because you know, I, there's a, I have a couple of questions, mostly about Nigeria. Actually, let's do the question first, and then we'll go back to, to the show. So two different people, Robert Lax and uh, Capri Sun, I remember Capri Sun, uh, wrote in and said that they saw that you were making uh, Injira, and they'd like to make some. Now, again, I, listeners of the show, pe- people who know Peter will know that he not only has a connection with Cameroon from when he was in the Peace Corps, but also with um, Ethiopia, uh, where he used to go on the regular because his wife was stationed there at, at the UN for years. Uh, and so you did in Jira. So I, I have two questions. Can you talk about how you make it and where you get your TEF? That's from Robert Lacks. And, well, and the exact same question basically from Caprice. And so you two people want to know about Injira and TEF. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Describe Injira first for a... those who don't know, by the way. Uh, yeah, so Injira is a fermented crepe-like uh, bread and it is a staple of injera. It's made with teff, which is, uh, as I understand it, the world's smallest grain. Um, and it has a very sour flavor owing to the fermentation process. And, um, and then it has the flavor of teff, which is pretty distinctive. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, I feel like people like to use the word nutty for everything, but I don't like that. So, um, yeah, because what just, does that mean? It tastes like teff. I know, exactly. So it tastes like teff. Um, and so if you want to learn it, then try tasting teff. Um, and, uh, and the but way it doesn't it, taste like whole wheat. It doesn't taste like buckwheat, yeah. right? It doesn't taste like any of those things. Yeah, yeah. It's just got its own flavor. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, and then it's, you probably know, you know, it's, it's, you, when you eat it, it's, it's, you lay it flat on, the, on a platter, and then you put all these various soups and stews on top of it. Um, and so I, in terms of sourcing teff for the injera, I mean, I have, I had, kind of an advantage because uh, I had a big bag of teff that we bought um, that my wife and I bought in Ethiopia on our last trip there and so I was I've just been using that um, and I haven't really had to use any teff I've sourced in the U.S. for a while so um, so yeah uh, I don't I can't help you there um, and but, then in terms of the wait, overall when you, process when you, when, you, hold on, when you buy it is it like is it like tiny like amaranth or like or like or like small millet or did they do you buy it ground in Ethiopia already I bought a ground in Ethiopia. Okay, okay. And how long does yeah. it last? Um, yeah, you know, I don't know, but like this in this case, I, I used the last of it, and it was maybe two years out, and it was still good. So, All right, go ahead. Sorry. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, and then yeah, I mean, like the process is like you you just, I mean, it's really simple actually. Uh, it's simple in theory, harder hard to execute, but uh, you just let you know add water and let it ferment, and then. Um, it gets like this sour smell to it, and the time, as you all know, will depend on your temperature and you know the particular teff that you're using. Uh, but figure three or four days, and then um, and then yeah, when it's ready to go, the big thing is it's really hard to cook and keep intact. 
Um, and then what you want to do is you want it to cook without like browning on the bottom and being, but you want it fully cooked on the top. And that can be a little bit tricky. Uh, the biggest piece of advice I'd have for people is don't try on your first time to do it on your, on your stovetop. Um, but start with an electric crepe maker or something that provides a really even low heat. Uh, because on the stovetop, it's just a nightmare. The, just the, the even the small variations in how your pan heats up just screws up the whole thing. So originally, like way back in the day, was it done with a ground product or was it wet ground like the way that you would do like idli or dosa batter? Do you know? I have no idea. Because I wonder like whether that's something because like I find it very difficult to grind tiny grains and get like good results. You know what I mean? Like before I had my grinders, I tried to grind, you know, Fonio, which is an African, like, very tiny millet before before Pierre Chan was bringing it in. And I had kind of difficult results to get it to work exactly the way I wanted, but I wasn't using a wet grinder. I wonder whether you could wet grind whole teff, because what's easier to get here in the States? Do the, the, most of the African markets here are primarily West African markets, right? Well, in New York City. But if you go yeah, to yeah, DC, I mean, you're good. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Oh, so, New York City is not really a good Ethiopian market. All right. But like there and it's fairly easy to get the uh, the ground teff. Yeah, I mean, Bob's Red Mill sells ground teff. I Is mean, it good? It's, uh, I've not tried it, but uh, I know that they do sell it. And I, I don't think it's particularly hard to find teff now. Um, Teff's super expensive, though, it, right? Or it used to yeah. be. Is it still? I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I mean, I've had the good fortune of just having the stuff I bought in Ethiopia. And are you a 100% teff person or are you a 50-50 split? What do you do? Oh, man, definitely 100%. And that's also one thing I'd say is if you go to an Ethiopian restaurant, um, then this is actually a pretty universal practice across Ethiopian restaurants in the U.S., as far as I can tell. Um, your injera you're going to generally get at an Ethiopian restaurant in the U.S. will be only partially teff. And if you want the teff, you have to call 24 hours in advance, and they will make the teff for you, um, the teff injera for you. Um, and so if you're thinking of going to a restaurant, think of it a day in advance and call ahead and ask for the Tef Injera. You have to pre-order a certain quantity, uh, but it's definitely worth it. And in general, that works? Like most Ethiopian restaurants, Eritrean restaurants will do that for you? Pretty much everyone that I have come across does that, yeah. Did you have to bust out some, you could do it in English? Like you don't have to know anything? You don't have to be special? No, like, no, no, no. Yeah. no. I, right. And I think it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think in general, I, well, I don't, I'm not even going to hypothesize as to why they all are able to do it, but it, it is the case. Yeah, so, so try it. Now, for those that have never had it before, I've only had 100% uh, Tef Injera once, and it was, it was extremely sour. Like, I assume right. that it doesn't always need to be as sour as the one that, that I had. It's, it's definitely worthwhile to sample that, right? Don't you think so? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's like, to me, like, the having the super sour teff injera is the is the perfect counterpoint to the stews, um, and definitely worth trying because that's what a lot of the stuff you'll find in Ethiopia is like. Um, and it, yeah, it might not be your bag, um, but then if you're making it at home, you can just simply ferment it less. Right now, do you think? I have no idea. I, I would I would guess you would have majority non teff in your injera. Based on the flavor of what I've had in, you know, basically, you know, New New Haven and New York uh, Ethiopian restaurants, I would say, yeah, the vast majority of it is uh, wheat flour, like the good percentage of it. You know what I mean? Right, Peter? Wouldn't you say? 
Yeah. yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, tests absolutely. also a lot more money. And, you know, back That's in the right. day, it was rarer, right? So there was a monetary reason not to do it. And then I'm sure there's some, we don't think Americans will like it kind of a situation as well, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, like, you, I, I don't know what the wholesale market is like for theft, but, you know, you can get flour for dirt cheap wholesale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you should try, every, everyone should, everyone should get the full, everyone should get the full, the full TEF at, at least once. Uh, all right. Now back to, back to your show for a minute. Uh, so one of the through lines I noticed was, and it's something I guess that we didn't, we didn't talk about a lot. Um, you know, you and I personally, when we were hanging out was kind of this feeling of being embarrassed by the by the food of your own culture, and it's a it's it comes up repeatedly in the in the in the podcasts, um, and it's kind yeah. of a, an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing to to think about. You want to talk about that as a through line? Yeah, I mean, I think that is like a recurring theme on the show is talking about what folks ate when they were kids, and you know, I think um, you know, it's it's a it's a remarkably common experience that for uh, immigrant families, when you're a kid, you eat the stuff that your family gives you and your family, if, especially if they're recent immigrants, is going to make you stuff that uh, is what they would have eaten in their home country. And that's going to be in, in stark contrast to what everybody else around you is eating. And, uh, and it's something you'll just hear over and over. Like Korean kids are embarrassed of the smell of kimchi in their home when their friends come over. Indian kids are embarrassed about the smell of the various curries and chutneys that their parents are making when they're when their friends come over, um, and on down the line. And so, but what's interesting is, of course, in generally speaking, as you get older, you start to, you know, realize there's nothing to be embarrassed about this. And in fact, you start owning it. And on top of that, I would say food culture in the U.S. has shifted such that there is a larger acceptance of a wider spectrum of flavors, uh, even among people who don't aren't from the cultures that have those flavors. And so... Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, it, is, it is one of these things that is kind of a through line. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Dan, Dan the, well, you and Dan the Automator. So, like, some of the people he has on, he has Dan the Automator, you know, Dan Nakamura. He was saying that, you know, he specifically thinks that kind of at least his generation, his parents' generation, self-repression of their own culture, which extends to certain parts of the foods, is due to the, the internment camps, right? That was one of the things that, that, that he mentioned. You. You want to yeah. talk about, about, about that? Yeah, so that, that episode is actually one of my favorites because the three guests, and this almost just happened by chance, um, one guest is a, a woman who immigrated herself to Vancouver, uh, Yumi Nagashima, and then the other guest was this rapper from North Carolina whose family immigrated, his parents immigrated from Japan and opened a restaurant in North Carolina. And then Dan is somebody who's been around, and he's like third or fourth generation Japanese-American. And Yumi, of course, eats Japanese food all the time, every day. Uh, G, uh, the rapper from North Carolina, he grew up eating Japanese food, but you know, it's just like a part of his experience, but not define, doesn't define his food identity. So it's like kind of similar to me. Um, and then Dan, it's like, I didn't grow up eating Japanese food really. Um, and when you really get down to the difference, Dan's theory was that, yeah, his grandparents were put into the internment camps and his parents grew up, were, were like three or four years old when they went to the internment camps and that not just with his family, but a lot of Japanese Americans who lived through that, they essentially afterwards suppressed their own culture uh, because of just the, the horror of being thrown in an internment camp and the fear of something like that happening again for just sticking out too much. And so... Um, right, desire to conform. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so to me, like, I mean, I've obviously thought a lot about like, well, I was gonna say obviously, but I have thought a lot about how uh, horrific the internment camps, the idea, the fact that that happened and all that is, but I had never really thought about the effect on culture, honestly. And that was interesting. Yeah. Hmm. And so, and then the, the episode that we haven't uh, talking about yet is the one where you, you do Nigerian food. You have on, uh, you have on Egon Woden, the comedian, and uh, which, which was funny because you're like lobbing a bunch of stuff at her and like some of the stuff that, you know, you like from when you were there, stuff that's kind of classic, she doesn't like, which was kind of hilarious, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you want to, you want to, you want to talk about, you want to talk about your, your connection? Well, I will say some, one thing, first of all, because he, he brings this up. So Peter Kim, <laughs> Peter Kim, he, when, you know, after he graduated college, he went to the Peace Corps. He was in Cameroon, right? But you were, you said you were on the border. Like the, 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 neighbor, the village you were in was kind of near the border with, right? So it's like with you Nigeria. feel like you, yeah, right. yeah you, feel, you feel like you had exposure to kind of like uh, food from that region. And also at the beginning of the show, you mentioned that, you know, it's, it's a kind of a false border anyway, right? right. Like, like the, the country borders over there are all, you know, false borders anyway. And so you, you feel like, you know, you have, you know, some, you're connected somewhat to Nigerian food. And um, so you, you, when you were in the, you know, over there working, like one of the things you were doing was setting up like art education, right? For kids. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And Peter Kim, and you, you might not know this, but I wish we could post this on the, on our <laughs> I know on where our you're website. going with this. <laughs> yeah. Peter Kim has on his phone, and it's available within 13 seconds of asking him at any time, possibly the greatest artwork that's ever been made. It's, it's, um, you know, for those of you that, for those of you that are, you know, here in New York city, you can go right now to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and see the Goya, uh, print and drawing exhibition, which is by the way, amazing. And I love, I love Goya because like the kind of, uh, depth of kind of just how awful humans can be, but also kind of pathos and how like weird humans can be. Like, I think Goya is one of the greatest artists at just representing that at just kind of like the holy crap of of life uh and you know it's especially you know and if all you know about francisco goya is like you know the you know small rich children in like red outfits then you're really kind of missing out i think on the greatest part of one of my favorite artists anyway but this drawing that one of your students did is almost like a Goya, like a Goya print, like one of the Capriccios or something. It's like, it's amazing drawing. And you want to describe this drawing, Peter? So this, so what, what I did in Cameroon was I paired public health education with art classes. So the kids would learn how to draw, but they'd also learn about the health issues associated with whatever they're learning to draw. And in this case, the person was learning about, um, yeah, diarrhea and uh, I can't remember what it was exactly, but um, something where the symptom was diarrhea. And so he drew <laughs> a depiction of a man squatting and having the most horrific <laughs> explosive diarrhea you've ever seen. With like complete with flies, you know, swimming around and like grimace on the face and the whole thing. And I will say that, okay, the image is pretty remarkable, but I think Dave's reaction to that was even more remarkable because if you know Dave, it's like 90% of the time you fly something by him, you're like, eh, okay, whatever, eh, eh, whatever. And then like you put this drawing of a guy having diarrhea in front of Dave and suddenly he's like, what is this masterpiece? <laughs> And then, like, you had this weird fascination with it. I mean, it is it is an amazing drawing, but um, I don't know that I ever really would have held it up as this sort of, like, 
uh, emblematic example of, of um, I don't know what, but yeah. Well, it's just this guy is having a terrible moment. Yeah. And it's just captured, right? And so, like, he's not even, like, he has no, like, it's, it's a person. So, Nastasia, you like this picture too, right? I don't really remember it. What? What? So, so if you look, if you look at his at his eyes, right? He is a he he's a he's a person, right? So he has his own thoughts and dreams, and he's not happy about what's happening to him. But all of his agency in life has been removed, like all of it. He has no more agency, and he's just like a vehicle for his butt being set on spray. <laughs> and so it's it's just it's just like this image of like resignation and debasement. That yeah, but I Dave, think, I was talking to somebody about this a couple of days ago and about how about when, this picture? No, about how when you have to go like that and it's like that, you you become an animal. Like I, when you're like this person has thoughts and hopes and dreams. Like that's all of us. Yeah, yeah. Like when that happens to you. That's what makes it a great picture. But if you look if you look <laughs> Capture, at this guy's yeah. if you yeah, but if you look at the guy's eyes also like you never know like maybe he has cho- cholera, maybe he's going to die, who knows? Cuz he he didn't even make it to like a bathroom or whatever. He's just out there on spray. Like with with like flies out. You, you you don't know like, you know, you don't know what the future holds for this person. You know what I mean? And it's it's, all, it's brilliant all, formal analysis, Davis. This is the kind yeah. of stuff you learned at your MFA. This is a, yeah, Columbia, Columbia. I know we're doing like main. an art critique on this. I yeah. have you know I'm a trained MFA, folks. I get to say whatever I want, but uh, I mean, it's, well, it's, I, I, I mean, can. I'm happy to share this image, um, and you, you can put it out on, on Twitter so folks can can see the the wonder and beauty of this. It's the flies, yeah. But well, you have permission from the artist. You said you kept in contact with this person, right? Oh, I guess. You know what? You're right. This is something we know. We'll have to we'll have to ask him about that. Yeah, there's there's the trained MFA talking about. Do we have the rights on the art? Anyway, uh, yeah. So, uh, by the way, by the way, uh, in that episode, Peter Kim said the most Peter Kim thing ever. Nastasia, you'll I think get. He said, "There's something so satisfying about the tactile sensation of manipulating a doughy ball." <laughs> <laughs> I rewound and listened to him saying that like three times because he was talking about uh, fufu. You want to talk about you want to talk yeah. fufu and all the various fufus? Yeah. So um, fufu is it's uh, yeah. I mean it's it's pounded starch or a porridge that um, you know it can so it can be a pounded starch like yams or cassava, or it can be a porridge made from you know grains uh, mixed with water. And what's 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 common about fufu, whatever the ingredient is, um, is that it's essentially ends up being a lump of starch that you uh, rip little pieces off of with your hand, and then you manipulate the doughy ball in your hand, and then you dip it into a stew and eat it that way. And you know, and I say this on the show, but like it's it's inherently a neutral uh, staple. I mean, it's not it's not full of flavor, but it's the whole the, it's the point of it is to. Be something that you scoop up sauce with. So but it can be. It can be um, more I hate it when people like this right? fufu as being as being bland because I'm like that's the that's the point. It's like rice or like anything that's just like a, a, a plain like staple. What, what's that? But, but it can be more or less sour as well, though, right? Yeah, yeah. It can be so made some with different grains and yeah, yeah. So you could do it with fermented cassava, and then you're going to get a little more of a sour flavor, for example. Um, but like and, neutral, like I, I, neutral is such a bad term for any grain product, right? I mean, like, does anyone actually, has anyone ever come home to a house where someone has cooked rice 
and not think that rice has like a thing. You know what I mean? Like grains have their own smell and their own taste. Yeah. Right? No. Absolutely. No. Of course, it has its flavor. But I've seen people where they will blast fufu for being flavorless. And sure, it, every fufu has a flavor, of course, um, like any other kind of staple. But it's not like flavorful like the stew that you're supposed to eat it with is. Right. So anyway, but I will say that, I mean, I do love fufu. Um, I think the general mode of eating is something I find very enjoyable. It is something I ate a lot of while I was in Cameroon, and then I will occasionally make um, at home, and especially if I go to any kind of West African restaurant, I'll always opt for the fufu. Um, it's it's nice. I mean, like, you just, yeah. I mean, th- there's a motion you do with the ball of fufu in your hand, and then you turn it into a little scoop, at least I do, um, and, and I love it. And what would you say about the tactile sensation of manipulating that doughy ball? <laughs> Well, How you, you know, categorize it? I think you can. I think anybody can relate with this. Like you have a, like a soft, squishy thing in your hand, and you. Oh god, this is going to go in the wrong direction. But like you know <laughs> what I mean. Like you have like something. <laughs> but you know, if you have something like, it's like it's like it's like having play doh in your hand. It's it's a pleasant thing to, uh-huh. to squeeze. Yeah. Yeah, Nastasia, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know what I'm thinking about. My oh, favorite god. story ever. Oh, oh god, favorite Peter story. Yeah. Well, okay, we can't no, have no. Peter on without talking about the story. Mainly because, well, for those of you that don't know, like, <laughs> Peter coined a phrase about Nastasi. You want to you wanna talk about this phrase, Peter? <laughs> Are you talking about the name I have for her? The, no, the no, German... no, I'm talking about, yeah, the German, the German term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Stassenfreude. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. as I think many of the listeners of this show have gleaned, what brings great joy to Nastasia is to see other people suffer. And it's not that she's created the suffering. She has not in any way no. intervened in people's lives to create the suffering. It's just observing it and, and basking in it. And so this, it's a special brand of, of course, Schadenfreude, which is the word probably you all know. And, and it's, it's Stassenfreude. Yeah, because it's very specifically like Nastasia-like. Oh, yeah. Anyway, anyway so who's going to tell this one? We've just been told a million times no. on the show. Peter. I guess Peter's never told. No, no, no. I, oh God, We're, no, Nastasia. If if this is coming out, it's you're you're telling the story, not me. Yeah, yeah. You know what, Nastasia? You always make other hey, people do. This. Peter walked right. in on Dave taking a dump. <laughs> the, the way you tell it is like freaking. <laughs> and it was wow. one of comes... the top five moments of my life. Yeah, Nastasia, for, for anyone that enjoys any of the products or anything that, that Booker and Dax has ever made or done, Nastasia would have quit long ago if she hadn't had her batteries recharged at uh, Williams College <laughs> by this interaction. It gave her like maybe three years of, of, of gas in the tank, I, right? I have never seen such pure joy on Nastasia's face as when that happened. I mean, it was pure, yeah, pure joy. Yeah. yeah. It was great. <laughs> I wish we had a video of Nastasia's face cuz uh according to Peter she was like like almost vibrating. <laughs> I reached she what they the I, I reached Nirvana. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She she was on the ground and just like I mean I don't know. Like it, it's what it I imagine like somebody who's like taking every drug combined. It wasn't yeah. a secondhand experience. I got to experience. Like yeah. most people don't get to to see the thing, you know. But I got to see. You know. It. You know what? It's like it's like train spotting and like the such a perfect day, <laughs> and like Nasasa's just floating. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get to some questions. Uh, as usual, uh, Peter. Am I, wait, wait. Do you have anything? You have anything else you want to say before we do? Who's, who's been your favorite guest, no, 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 Peter? Too- oh, that's a good question. Uh, I would say Femi Kuti and Made Kuti were pretty amazing. And I mean, not just because like it's like I mean, for me, like just it's music that I legit have loved for so long and really shaped me a lot. Uh, but they were just a lot of fun. To, it was a lot of fun to have the father son combo on. Um, and for those that don't know, this is Fela's son and grandson, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Femi played with Fela. So Egypt 70 was one of the bands that backed up Fela, and Femi was in Egypt 70. And then Made has learned from his father as well. And so there's, it's a really great lineage. And their music, all of it's really great. Um, but yeah, no, that's my favorite guest. They, cl- they also have a club restaurant, right? Yeah, called The Shrine. Did which you go? Is, you ever gone? No, I mean, I've never been to Nigeria, so I would love to go. Um, but yeah, no, that's it. And I'd say, yeah, tune in to Counter Jam, counterjam.com. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. Well, you, you start that episode, they have to kick in a generator to get the, uh, they have to kick in their second generator because their first generator died and apparently their electricity was cutting out constantly. So Peter's like oh, nervous, yeah. he's not going to get the interview. But it ends up actually being like, <laughs> like they actually, they end up being really cool. You know what I mean? Like, not like, I mean, obviously they're cool, but I mean, like, they end up being kind of like cool to talk to, right? Yeah, they were great. Um, it was definitely challenging because there was such a heavy delay that we had to like, yeah, there was there was a lot of a lot of confusion from the delay too, but but it worked out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you well, you pose like it's the it's a I know what this is like. There's a huge father son argument in this episode that boils down because P- Peter like has uh, the question that he asks. So like, you know, Nastasia is always like, how much to cut off your right toe? How much to whatever? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, how much to, you know, do X horrible thing with X horrible person? Uh, but Peter, what's your stock question? If you were stuck on a desert island and you had to eat one dish for the rest of your life, what would it be? But you also, for the purposes of your show, you narrow it to, like, one that's within the culture you're talking about. That's so right, they of can't, course, yeah. It's not like, you know what I really like? Big Macs. Love them. Right. Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, so, but then. It's not the most delicious. It's, like, what would a- you would actually want to eat every day in and day out for the rest of your life. And for anyone that, like, for, most people, they, they tend to cop out and try to, like, pick something that includes, like, everything. You know what I mean? Like they want like everything <laughs> yes. in one dish, they try, right? But the the hilarious thing is is that so like um, the son the the grand the son or grandson he's like Made is like he mentions this he mentions a, a like a, a dish with both turkey and chicken and his dad loses loses his mind <laughs> on the son and he's like what's so messed up is is that he he has both plantain and starch which I guess you know, you could count kind of in similar kind of baskets. And so the son's like, you have both plantain and starch. Why can't I have both chicken and turkey? And the, and the dad's like, because it's two different bodies. It's two different living bodies. You can't bring two. You can't bring two. You know what I mean? It's just this kind of great kind of back and forth, I thought. I don't know. I found oh, it yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh. All right. Any any other questions you have, Nastasia? Before we go into uh, our kind of standard cooking issue style questions. No, Peter. I think uh, yeah. I'm so happy to see your show doing so well. Yeah. Who you got in your next season? Apparently, it's uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I just I've got one of the episodes that we're doing is on Jewish American food, 
and I've got uh, Eitan Bernath and Ilana Glazer on for that one. So that'll cool. be fun. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm working. I, the other ones I can't uh, disclose just yet, but it's gonna be it's gonna be great. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest-growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers in your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can start with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st forward slash hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also a frozen pre-baked folded version that's idea for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andreas calls Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says it's so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st forward slash hrn. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, houseplants, and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. Uh, all right, so let's do some, uh, let's do some stuff. Okay, you want to go, like, full, like, full Nastasia doesn't care, or, like, halfway? You should try to do both. All right, I'm going to go full you don't care. <laughs> From Monty via email, uh, Dear Cooking Issues crew, hope you're staying warm and hydrated. Uh, what would you look for in a freeze dryer? They seem pretty expensive. Are there any DIY alternatives? I have a friend who travels on motorcycles quite a bit and wants to freeze dry his homegrown produce. Thanks. Monty from Jacksonville, uh, Oregon. All right. So uh, traditional freeze dryers are extraordinarily expensive and they have relatively low uh, throughput. Uh, And you can't really DIY it because you need a, a cold trap. It needs to be extremely cold. Uh, and you know, and most things that you could consider to be DIY freeze drying, like don't end up looking like what you want from a freeze dryer. I'm thinking like chunos from like uh, Peru, where you know you could do that just by literally freezing it and then desiccating them and back and forth. But that, that's not what you're looking for. There is now so ch- cheap for a freeze dryer is about five grand. 
and you can get one for I think between three and five grand now that's meant for food preppers and during the COVID time I'm sure everyone who's prepping food uh, you know for the future zombie apocalypse and whatnot and for when we get a disease that wipes us out even harder than this one I'm sure the price the probably probably the price has stayed constant actually the same way grain mills have but they're out there now I forget the name of the company it's like something harvest like good harvest or good nature harvest and it gets relatively good reviews it's relatively home friendly and it's relatively expensive relative to the $10,000 lab conco freeze dryers that you could get but look for a large enough cavity that you can do a good amount of product and stay away from the ones that just freeze dry bottles because therein lies a pain in your butt but that's what most lab people want to do was that a decent answer fast enough yes all right uh all right there is a carbonation question uh, what do you think? No. I'll stay away no. from it. Remember, that was the whole point of you making that video, that, that you would never answer another one, so you would point them to the video? Uh, this person wants to carbonate cocktails with a McCann carbonator. I would he say stay away go, from it. You um, should go get your book or talk to somebody else. Wow. I feel like people, here's the thing. If you're asking a carbonation question, it's like just a trigger for Nastasia. No, like, it's because you told me to keep you on track. And when someone in the future asks about carbonation, that you would point them to the resources that you made because you spent a lot of time on them. So I'm just doing what you said. But if you don't want to, go ahead and answer it. Somehow I'm a bad guy again. I don't even know what it is. It's, it's not the same question that the video addresses is the problem. But it's just you in general just hate any carbonation question. It's like me asking you to do quick agar freeze thaw. Or not quick agar. Allow quick me to agar jump agar in and, and do a general a general call for carbonation questions, please. Wow. Wow. Stirring, <laughs> stirring the pot. This is this is Peter doing yeah, his yeah, own Stasenfreude. Yeah. This is Peter doing his own Stasenfreude. I'm just uh, kidding. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do people still say half in jest whole in earnest? I grew up hearing that constantly. No. People don't use that phrase anymore? No. no? It's a good so. one. Because it's like every time someone's joking, they really mean it. When was the last time someone was joking and they were just joking? Right, right. Yeah. Well, the other classic thing you can always say is "bless, bless his heart," right? Oh yeah, bless your but heart. Did you say? Did you that, say that, that up in anything. Illinois? I thought that was only Southerners who said that. You oh, said I that think in, it was Illinois? in Illinois too. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I you know I grew up in a Hallmark store. Right. Oh my God, that's true. Another picture that we can share because Peter owns it is a very depressed-looking young Peter Kim on a bench. No, I don't think he's Where, on the bench. Isn't he? Doesn't he have his helmet off? He has his helmet off. I thought he was seated. Peter, what is it? Yeah. In I'm my dressed mind, he's as like a, a precious moment. Yeah. Yes. yes. With the helmet yes. off. Because we had holiday parties and, you know, I had to be the person who dressed up as a precious. It's a family business. So who else is going to wear the precious moment costume? And I took pictures with all these. What about uh, your brother? Did you make collectors. your brother do it? My brother was already in college at that point. Okay. All right. So like I want like in my mind, here's what it is. It's like you had just listened to Fogarty's put me in coach. I'm ready to play your dress as for some reason, this minor league baseball team has a precious moments thing as their mascot. And you've decided that you can play center field because the center fielder is injured and you know, you're at least as good as the injured center fielder. And you take off the, the, the furry head and the coach still says no. And you sit on the bench and you look down. That's what it says to me. <laughs> this picture, like this, is, that's the image in my mind. Man, so and like the thing is, is like, do you regret sharing these kinds of things with Nastasia and me, knowing that like as soon as we see that kind of image of whatever you want to call that, 
that it's there forever and it's, it never goes away. <laughs> no, I'm I'm happy if I can if I can bring a a brief moment of joy <laughs> to your lives. Yeah, I feel I'm like we share equally like horrible things. Yeah, you hardly ever share. Well, there's the one we can't talk about it. But Nastasia, you try to keep oh. your horrible stuff under the like close to the chest. There, you know what I mean. You're not you're not so much on sharing your heart. That's not true. Okay. I showed I you guys the most horrible thing. That's like that's this, true. Yeah, that's true. So what? So after I would say after maybe eight nine years, like and so like and you know we we've been and and Peter's been in in the you know we've known each other maybe we've been only together like two two years as uh, working together when we met Peter right right Nastasia something like yeah, that maybe so it's so it's been like a long time anyway yeah. It was like maybe eight years before Nastasia shared this one thing, and I will never share it with the world, ever. It's but only because I she, couldn't find photo evidence, and as soon as I did, I showed it. It wasn't photo evidence, video evidence. Yes. Video and photo evidence. Yeah, it's out there, people. It's not out Ominous. there. It's out there. It's not out Ominous. there. Ominous. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, 91, uh, Alex, uh, Alexander, uh, I think it's, I can't remember whether it's tile guard or tail guard. Sorry. Uh, you told me how to pronounce it last time. Uh, had a honey dehydration question, and uh, uh, all, all he wants is to... He, he's trying to get all of the liquid out of honey to make it into a powder and use it as a sugar and doesn't care about the aroma or anything like that. Yeah, just throw it in a dehydrator. It'll dehydrate. Just be aware that uh, it is extremely uh, hygroscopic, so it will reabsorb moisture. So don't expect to have free, uh, you know a free-flowing honey powder that you can just leave out. Uh, and have it be uh, working for you. Uh, from Keith Fitzgerald via email, and I spoke to Peter a little bit about this uh, beforehand, had a question, hope all is good. Could you ask Dave, uh, I, and I'll just tell you, no, I do not have any experience. Do, do I have any experience with the Korean machine uh, called the Oku, O-C-O-O, I'm assuming it's pronounced Oku, pressure cooker. I just obtained one and I'm figuring it out. Be great to hear if I have any knowledge about uh, double chambered pressure cookers. And as a side question, what's the best way to cook Welks? Welks, I didn't even see that last section of the question. Thanks, Keith, an Irish listener. Well, I've never had Irish Welks, but I'm assuming that because it's the Atlantic, they're pretty similar to the Welks that we used to catch off of uh, the uh, coast of Cape Cod. You, any of you guys, other guys cook Welk? No. Nope. So Welk nope. is kind of like a, it's like a crappy conch. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, imagine like they look like, like conch. Do you, are you a conch or a conch? What do you, what, what do you guys, what, what do you prefer? I'll use whatever you prefer. Conch. Conch? All right. So like, whereas like the conch is this big kind of like awesome shell and you can like turn it into like a horn and it like looks pretty and you can get the big thing out and you can slice it and pound it and do all this other kind of stuff with it and they sell it canned. Like whelk looks like that, but like busted. You know what I mean? Like small, like ish, dingy. And then when you pull it out, like it, it doesn't necessarily have a, so you guys ever like you guys have all eaten some form form of snaily slash welky slash conky thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know how you when you pull it out, you have the muscle, which is what everyone's looking for, and then you got the 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 goopa loop afterwards that you know the stuff that you trim off and then pitch. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 So I feel that the welk has an unfavorable amount of goopa loop to uh, the to the to the meat, and also the welk that I used to catch live like had like a real kind of like just kind of like a musty kind of kind of like like seaweed that's been out too long kind of like kind of 
you know, like aquarium water taste to it. And by the way, when I say fresh, literally like I would go into the water, get them, pull them out and cook them right away. So it's not like they were stale or anything like that. Um, so I'm going to say whatever I did to them. Now, fair, fair point. The last time I did this was when I was 18. So it's been, you know, 30 years since I have 32 years since I've done this. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and say, I have no good knowledge on you, but whatever I did, don't do that. Like I would assume that you have to peel off and trim more than I did and maybe beat the ever loving hell out of it. Now, if you want to talk about getting caw hogs, I don't know if you have caw hogs over there in Ireland, but those you make stuffies with. You guys like stuffies? I have not had a lot of stuffy, but they look really good. Yeah, stuffed clam, man. Who doesn't? I mean, Nastasia probably doesn't like a stuffed clam. I'm just guessing based on Nastasia's like. You're right. I don't like. Yes. Yeah, why don't you like a stuffed? I don't clam? know. It doesn't matter. Go. What about you, John? Yes, big fan. Yeah, right. They're yeah. good. Yeah, delicious. And you can make them in all different kinds of flavors. Like you take a really tough clam, you chop it up, you mix it with like breadcrumbs and other cool stuff, and then you you, you broil it. Well, well, I mean, like what's not to uh, what's not to enjoy? You know, to what me, it you, evokes Matt? it evokes like stuffed uh, potato skins from like TGI Fridays, which might <laughs> sound horrible, but I love that, and I still dream about those potato skins. TGI Fridays is famous for their potato skins. They have yeah, spent yeah. millions of dollars to make potato skins such that you will enjoy them, Peter. There's no shame yeah. in enjoying a TGI Friday potato skin, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, I find that my potato skins, maybe I'll work on it, aren't very good. What about you? Have you ever made a potato skin that you really liked? I've tried making it. I think it turned out all right, but I don't know that I really, yeah, I don't know. The, the skin's never as crunchy as I want. Right, right. It gets pa- it gets papery. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like yeah. I, I haven't fully worked it out yet. Um, anyone else here a potato skin fan? Have good good feelings on potato skins? I Love think them. Good. Yeah. Do you like? But have you ever made them, or do you just buy them from TGI Fridays? Never made them. Yeah. I made them, and you know, yeah, I couldn't get them as crispy as I wanted. So maybe we should work on this. Maybe I'll work on it for the miracle. It is a moisture management problem, and I do have a whole section on potatoes. Oh, Dave, we're supposed to talk about the quest. Oh, all right, give, give me a second. Let me uh, so this this pressure cooker because I, I mentioned Keith's Keith's question. And I haven't I have not used one of these things, but I had Peter look at it right right before the show to see whether like he had any sort of like knowledge of where this might have come from. But what it is is it's like a ceramic. There's like a a, a pot and a steamer insert that fit into a stainless steel. Uh, vessel. So there's a stainless steel pressure cooker with a pressure cooker lid, but interposed between the lid and the um, and, and the and the and the base, you can put these ceramic pots. So it's like a combination, like pressure cooker. It's like an like a, kind of like a very expensive hardcore Instapot thing, but I think it's made for commercial commercial use. So do you see any kind of you see anything in this that rings any bells, Peter, or anything no. that uh, gives you any any feelings about cooking and crockery in general? No, but I've just it, when you mentioned it, I did the quick Google image search of stuff you could make with it, and it looks pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I like ceramics. I do like ceramics. I'm not. I'm not like. So Nastasia and I uh, once went to Paula Wolfert's house. You, you guys remember the author Paula Wolfert? Anyway, yeah. so we went with with Harold McGee, uh, and this was, I believe, right after we had eaten. 10,000 uh, citrus uh, 
citrus fruits and I was on my way to trying to go set myself on spray the best day of my life where my butt was set on spray but I was spraying out orange juice it was the best it was the best thing ever anyway so on the way home from that uh we went and stopped at Paula Wolford's house and she was a, she's a huge devotee was uh I don't know whether she's still around of uh cooking in clay and she wrote a book on cooking in clay and there's a huge group of people who are like extremely stoked about cooking in, uh, in clay and i've just never become one of these clay heads any of you guys clay heads no no, no. Mm. all right i don't really get it uh, i don't but, that, but that's the thing i don't really understand i don't understand what it is that the clay is doing and all the explanations are extremely mystical you know what i mean yeah it's like baking in salt i don't quite understand that either well, baking in salt, so in the 70s, baking in salt like was a huge thing. So they had, they had two things that, that people did in the 70s. It was chicken in salt and, and fish in salt, like a whole fish in salt yeah. and, a, and, a, and a whole chicken in salt. And so the idea is that you, that this, I guess that you have a bunch of salt around, which of course nobody did in the 70s. We just had regular like, you know, people didn't, I don't feel like the kosher salt had become something that everyone had you know, in their, in their pantries unless they, you know, needed it for cultural reasons. Anyways, so you, you pack all of the salt around whatever you're going to cook and it supposedly forms a shell, almost like baking in clay, right? So it's about sealing yeah. something in moisture. It's almost like, it's like akin to like an papillote or, yeah. or sous vide or something like this. But so my mom did it with a, with a chicken and uh, this was, you know, she was going out with my stepfather, but they hadn't been married yet. So this had to have been 1982. So I was, I was 11. And uh, so how many years ago? I'm, I'll be 50 in two weeks. So you can do the math. Like, and the salt collapsed and there was no barrier. I don't know whether you're supposed to put a barrier. My mom had no barrier. The salt was literally packed around the chicken. And my mom's a phenomenal cook, by the way. But the salt collapsed into the chicken and it was the saltiest chicken. <laughs> like without any shadow of a doubt, the saltiest object that I've ever put into my mouth and <laughs> and I've eaten straight salted capers you know what I mean so it was like it was just intense and so also because it was the eight you know I guess it was early 80s I guess it wasn't 70s um you know you didn't say anything about it you just ate it you know what I mean and so we, you know, that's the thing I don't understand about kids these days. They always have something to say about the food that's served to them. It's like when I was a kid, you just ate whatever was put in front of you. Blame the parents. What? No, you just ate it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Nastasia, Nastasia has yeah. all sorts of things to say about parenting. Uh, we'll wait well, and see. She, has, she yeah. witnesses a lot of it. Yeah, kind of. Uh, so anyway, so like we didn't say anything. But to this day, every once in a while, my stepfather's like, remember the salt chicken? I'm like... <laughs> I'm like, Gerard, what the hell, man? You got to like, yeah. you know, my mom is my mom is 70, right? And she's cooked some of the best things that he's ever eaten in his whole life. You know what I mean? Plus, she is a pediatric cardiologist and runs a trans, started and runs a pediatric transplant program, the first pediatric heart transplant program in the United States, right? So like, you know, and he won't let her forget this one time that we had a super salty chicken. I just don't feel it's right to bring that up, you know? (laughs) Remember the chicken, Lynn? No one's going to come down on the side of Gerard here. Yeah. Yeah. Lynn, Lynn, you remember the chicken? You remember how salty it was? 
Yeah, and to be fair, I imagine I imagine that baking in salt and like I haven't had a, a lot of stuff baked in salt really, but like it's you know it's festive and it's there's fun. It's a fun surprise to crack things open. But I just say like I don't really understand beyond that like why why you would do it, you ever, which may be reason to, enough. I mean, yeah, yeah. You ever go to uh, Turkey? Mm, yeah, I was in Turkey. Yeah, you ever have that 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 the thing baked in clay in Turkey, and then you go outside the restaurant, and it's just there's piles of broken clay vessels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just kind of cool. I don't even care yeah, how the thing it's tastes. Cool. So, I mean, and there, there's something to be said for yeah, presentation format, ceremony, and it's great. But yeah, yeah, John, as the as the well, both Peter and John are both a francophiles and francophones. But do you guys enjoy the the fish that's cooked in a crust and then open table side and deboned by the waiter? I haven't had it, but I mean, I, that, I really I would order that to see that done in front of me. I think that'd be pretty cool. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, again, it doesn't matter how it tastes. Like the presentation is almost enough in yeah. that case. I mean, I mean, I guess not I would the kind put, of thing I would want to. Do. I would put beef Wellington in the same bucket. It's like a delicious combination of things, but really, it's also about like the surprise of what cutting into that. Yeah, yeah. But I guess the nice thing about the fish is that they do it table side. And then they – do you enjoy the old school, like the, the French way of not touching it and just using the two – like using the fork and the and the thing to, to get all of the bones out, lay them aside, and have the four – it's always with a flat fish. And have like the four perfect fillets. You don't sure, think that's – I mean – Sure class. I love it. Right? Mm. Yeah. It's magic, right? I mean it's like – it's like, uh, you know, that's not the way I cook. It's not the way I would ever cook. But like when someone like – is like I'm just going to go dot all these I's and cross all these T's and do it. You're like, props, no? Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So wait. So we have to talk about the quest, but I want I'm going to ask you guys this question. I'll answer it next time because I don't understand exactly what's being gotten at. All right. So listen to this question, and then you guys tell me what it means, and then I will think about it for next time. Devin Patel wrote, unless you have an answer, Devin Patel wrote in, uh, I've recently been looking at purchasing equipment and I'm trying to distinguish between what is sold as quote unquote industry standard. Okay. To not bring about a spotlight and hurt someone's business, I want to keep it vague. So, so Devin's not telling me exactly which company is saying that they're an industry standard, but I, I'm finding it hard to read between the lines here. All right. So my question is, when looking at industry-specific equipment to purchase and comparing it to another piece of equipment that is industry-adjacent but looks and does exactly the same thing, like a scale. So I guess buying like a butcher scale versus like a, 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 a counting scale for a deli versus like a, a postal scale. I mean, maybe that's what we're talking about. How can you tell if the materials and build are quality and that the price just and the price doesn't just get jacked up because it's specific for an industry? So I guess medical stuff and, and stuff like that could be. Is that you think that's what you think that's what uh, what he's talking about? You have any thoughts on it before? Or should I just cogitate on it? I have no idea. Sounds like everything you try and do. Like well, finding like, parts like, and finding cheaper parts in like related industries that do achieve the same thing in the end. Right. Like I, well, I use, well, when I started out in this, it was about like finding things from other industries that chefs didn't use. There was a mad dash to get any piece of equipment and use it. That's how like, you know, ultrasonic homogenizers and ultrasonic cleaners and all sorts of, uh, you know, rotovaps and all, all this, you know, even emergent circulators. It started with the emergent circulator, and that was how 
everyone was like, let me look at anything else that can be used for, for cooking. But I think here it's more like there is something already that's being sold for cooking, but I want to use it for something else, right? And how do you how do you tell? I mean, the first thing is whether it's food grade or not, right? That's the that's that's the other that's the other issue. Uh, also, Devin believes this, and I'm going to throw this out there because we have to talk about the quest. Sorry, real quick, Matt. Uh, and Peter will appreciate this because it's a horror show. Uh, anyway, so Devin says, salt to taste for recipes is a cop-out. This is Devin saying this. This is a statement. Just saying, if it's your recipe, then you get uh, to decide how much salt it gets and the power's in your hands. All the salty power, sincerely, Devin. I don't know that I agree, I don't know that I agree with that just because, like, salt is... It's so hard to control with what raw ingredients you have and any other kind of changes or mistakes. Whenever you read someone's recipe, when you write a recipe, you have to write a recipe knowing it will be mangled, right? Go and read any review section of any recipe website or reviews of recipes in a book. They're like, I loved it, but I I, I substituted beef for chicken. I omitted the starch and I added a whole bunch of cheese. And I loved it. You know what I mean? Or I did that and I hated it. The recipe didn't work. All I did was substitute. I took away the starch and I added cheese and I substituted the beef for the chicken. But the recipe didn't work. What a moron. And so like, you know, when you know that you're going to have your recipe completely butchered, right? And you don't know exactly what ingredients someone's going to use. Like, um, it's very hard to write a specific amount of salt. And also... Salt is the ingredient that people F up the most because someone will, someone will say, first of all, like someone will say two teaspoons kosher salt. They won't even say whether it's Morton or Diamond, right? Which is, you know, you're already off by a factor of uh, you know, uh, a third at least. And then God forbid someone used like, you know, granulated uh, iodized. It's just almost impossible. And no one reads that fine. And nobody gives enough of a crap to actually get that stuff right and so I think it's almost impossible to write salt into a recipe uh, accurately. What do you guys think? Unless you do it by weight. Unless you do it by weight. But then but then you still have to put a teaspoon or a volumetric measurement next to it because otherwise people are going to be like, I don't know, I'm going to weigh salt. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think yeah. it's just really difficult. I don't think it's a – I don't – in other words – and people really do have radically different salt tolerances. And if you're trying to give someone a recipe, I think there's really yeah. something to be said for allowing somebody to adjust your vision because they're going to eat it. You're not going to eat it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're going to eat it. So like, you know, I find when I'm doing a recipe, I will tell someone how I like it, but then I'm not going to eat it. So I just, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's a cop out. Um, I think it's a cop out. It's a cop out to not measure it and tell people, tell people what you think. But I don't think it's a cop-out to tell people why there's fudge or wiggle room. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page as you. I think the places where I want to have salt measured out is a baking recipe. And and then actually another area where it's actually you don't see the salt often measured out, uh, but it should be for sure, is with pickles. Like it's really hard. Sometimes it's really hard to find a pickle recipe where they give you the actual just like by weight percentage of salt that they want to aim at. And to me, that's really annoying. Oh, super annoying. Super annoying. First of all, like, I don't understand. Like, everyone should go back and just the way every brine recipe should work is it should be the amount of salt for total weight of brine plus Exactly. Yeah. I hate it that you have, like, oh, add, like, a cup of salt 
and then add water to fill the jar. I'm like, well, <laughs> how big's the jar? Yeah. Like, how what? dense is your like ingredient? I mean, I mean, it's like it's crazy. Yeah, right. And so that especially goes, you know, like well, like a you know, like a lot of pickles are done dry. Like the only pickles that that have recipes that make sense are the ones that are done dry and they create their own brine because then at least it starts with some rational percentage, right? But right. the ones where you're just like topping up with water, it's an absurdity. And it's like, look. If you're writing a recipe for brining chicken and you're only going to brine the chicken for two hours, then sure, focus on the concentration of the brine, right? Uh, but if you're going to do well, what we refer to as equalization, right, where you're going to you know, pretty much equalize the salt content throughout the entire batch, then base the salt on the whole weight, chumps. You know what I mean? Yeah, you're right, Peter. It's completely irritating and, and so widespread, so yes. widespread. Try finding and, a kimchi recipe that gives you the weight of salt by like overall weight. It's very hard. Well, yeah, but that, that's the other problem. So like if you have recipes that are written by people that have done something their whole lives, they're like, you do it till it tastes right. But that's so unhelpful <laughs> to someone who's never done it, you know? Yes. Yeah. That's my mom. I mean, that's what she says. And then I'm like, ah. And so, yeah, yeah. I actually I have my kimchi recipe and it's, it's all by percentage weight. Yeah. Oh, nice. Well, maybe, well, maybe uh, give, give it to us and we'll put – do you, or like what, what – do you, what seafood products do you put into it? Uh, I use um, seuchot, which is the, the salted shrimp. Um, and then sometimes, you know, oysters or mussels. But I, my standard is seuchot because I always have it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, salt by percentage. Do you think people are resistant to cooking by percentage? See, like whenever – like when I'm writing all my recipes that I have in my in, – you know, on my computer here – it's always just it's always just percentage. I just write salt as a percentage, always. You know what I mean? Like, always. Um, but I think people don't want to calculate. I guess people don't change recipes, so they don't need to switch percentages up and down. What do they do? Like, like remove cabbage until it weighs exactly a kilo before they make their stuff when they're doing a recipe? It doesn't make sense, right? You know, you don't buy cabbage. You, you pay for cabbage by the kilo, but you buy cabbage by the cabbage. So you make the amount that is in the cabbage that you have purchased. No? Anyway. Yeah. I assume people just do a lot of rounding. But it's not that hard. I mean, everyone has a smart – well, not everyone. If you, if you are reading a recipe on the internet, you probably have a smartphone. And it just doesn't take that much time to multiply something by a percentage number. It takes almost no time. Truth. Yeah. What's this quest uh, thing? All right, all right. Uh, Nastasia. So Nastasia spends most of I spend most of my days at a desk where I am right now. It's covered in electronics because I'm prototyping. This, this, my whenever my wife comes home, she's like, "Have you cleaned up the electronics yet?" I'm like, "I'm not done with them." So it's just like I'm in piles of piles and piles of of uh, electronics and 3D printing gear. But what Nastasia does is she deals with different teams of Amazon people. Some are bots, some are not. And she has to determine who's a bot and, and who's not. But she was given, she was given a task uh, a week, a week, a week and a half ago. And this is relating to, Nastasia and I are still trying to deal with the fact that Amazon will not sell Searsalls. And we're, we're close people. I wouldn't say close in time, but we're close in finding out what the solution is going to be. But you want to talk about what happened there, Seth? Just quickly, they, they were like, you have another account underneath your – well, it's not your business name, but there well, is – We're trying to set up another selling right. account that's not They're like, yeah. you can't open this new account because there's another account that might be associated with this account, but we can't give you any other information other than this email, which is not your email. 
But if you look hard, you'll be able to find out like what, who, who's behind this account. And then we're going to send your business partner, Dave, a card in the mail with a special code on it. And if he gives you that code, then it'll unlock this thing so that you can figure out who's behind this other account. Cause we can't tell you, but we're sure that maybe you'll be able to find out. And by the way, this postcard is like novelty check size. It's like huge. And all it contains is like five, five digits yeah. of information, but it's like a novelty check that they send you in the mail. So, uh, and so Nastasia, I'll be, I'll be you, you be the, you be the lady. Wait, so let me get this, let me get this straight. You know what's wrong. Yes. And like looking, like you could tell exactly what it is that I need to do to rectify oh, this. Yeah. <laughs> but you won't tell me. Right. Because you want me to go on a quest. Exactly. And when you find out, you call me and you tell me. And I'll let you know what? if it's true or not. <laughs> Whether you have fulfilled the quest. <laughs> so this is like some sort of Ready Player One garbage. Like where, you know, Nastasia had to go buy an Atari 2600. And she had to get like the adventure cartridge, which I used to play as a kid. Oh, and love that game. She, yeah, she had to go into all the you know, the invisible rooms and find the magic chalice and not get eaten by the dragon. And I'm still she would on the quest. Yeah, I'm still on. well, she would go to the lady. She'd be like, "Is it this? Do I get the magic card?" She's like, "No, no." <laughs> <And at the laughs> you know end, what I mean? At the end, there's going to be some sort of magnificent moral lesson for you, and yeah. you'll be improved as a person, and you'll have a functional business. That would be so. Awesome. In your in your mind, Nastasia, mm -hmm. in your mind, like. Who is playing the Knights Templar and when you have to choose which cup to drink out of? And is the Nazi beat you there and drink ahead of time or not? I don't know. I don't know. You gotta choose a person now. Oh, Harold McGee. Guarding... Harold McGee. Harold McGee is guarding the cups. <laughs> and we're like, oh, that's Harold, so it's been you the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> is he dressed as Zoltar at that time? Yes, yes. Oh god, uh, god. I have to say, who's... in the Dave Arnold bingo, a reference to Indiana Jones is definitely one of the squares. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it gets less, it gets, it's more and more, like, I know more and more people I've spoken to whose childhood lives were ruined by one or more of those movies. You know what I mean? So the person that we had on um, the on the show, one of the people, we had three people, one of the people we had on the show last week uh, told me that the Temple of Doom, like, almost single-handedly ruined huge chunks of his childhood experience. Because he's he's uh, you know Indian American, and so like that whole and that whole thing came out. When did it come out? Like 1982 or eighty three or something like that. So he was he's my age, so he was like eleven or something. And he was like, yeah, it was just like never ending garbage. Like those movies are among the like if you watch them now, cringe worthy kind of situations, right? I mean, it's like are any of them? I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts, Peter? Well, I I have I have only happy feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's the quest. And so you stay tuned next week for uh, any kind of updates we have in the quest. We, if it goes much longer, we're going to try to find some sort of world famous Dungeons and Dragons expert to come on. And because Nastasia could, like, I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the Nastasia again. Nastasia is going to be the the person she was talking to. Hey, are, what, what am I, what am I, what am I hearing? Are, are you, are you rolling a twenty sided die? 
Because, like, she was choosing our health, right? Nastasia, like, she's rolling the die and choosing how many health points we would have. <laughs> and, like, you know, so every time I hang up the phone with Nastasia at the end of the day now, I'm like, don't let the orcs get ya. <laughs> because she's in some sort of, like, weird Dungeons and Dragons kind of a, a situation. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I, who, wait, oh, before we go, who's the, who's the Nazi who, who chooses poorly? Who, that, that, you know, Harold gets to say he chose poorly. Oh, God, who I don't it? know. I don't know. That would be Come way on. too personal. No, I don't know. Uh, all right. All right. Well, we'll let you know. We'll let you know whether we saw the crest. And, uh, Peter, congrats on the, on the first uh, season of your show. We're looking forward to the Thank second you. one. It's good to be on. Come on. Uh, you know, you're always welcome here at the, at the Cooking Issues. We love having you. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>